0: Chapter 4 of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. Brown Book of Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter 4, Part 1. Chapter 4 the real incendiaries. The German Reichstag. The foundation stone of the German Reichstag was laid by Wilhelm I on June 9, 1884. The building was completed in December 1894. The German Reichstag building is in the Konigsplatz, opposite the Bismarck Memorial. The east front faces the Friedrich-Eberstrasse, the south front overlooks the Teegarten, across the Simonstrasse, Well, the north front overlooks the Spree. The building consists of cellars, a ground floor, a main floor, an intermediate floor, and two upper floors. The front of the building is 137 meters long. It is crowned by a large dome, round which are four smaller cupolas. The central feature of the main floor is the session hall, in which the Reichstag met. The walls of the chamber are paneled in wood except for the side behind the president's chair, which is stone. The dais, the tribunes, and the deputy seats are of wood. The seats are arranged in the form of an amphitheater in seven sections, divided by narrow, thickly carpeted gangways. There is a corridor running round the hall, which leads into the lobby. The corridors and the hall are furnished with carpets, upholstered seats, and heavy curtains. In the main floor there are also numerous rooms and halls, with windows looking out over the streets. The reading room, the archives, and the library are partly on the main floor and partly in the intermediate floor. The heating and ventilating apparatus is in the cellars. A small flight of stairs leads from the cellar to a subterranean passage, which leads out under the portico of the Reichstag and under the Friedrich Eberstrasse. A door shuts off this subterranean passage from the stairs and also from the other rooms containing the ventilation apparatus. Hot pipes run along the walls of the passage. The main entrance of the Reichstag opens on the Konigsplatz, but this entrance is only used on special occasions. How does a visitor get access to the Reichstag? In all its reports on the burning of the Reichstag, The Hitler government gave no indication of how the incendiaries got into the Reichstag. They replied on the fact that practically no German or foreigner knows the formalities which have to be gone through in order to enter the Reichstag. The following shows what a visitor to the Reichstag has to do to get in. 1. Non-members and visitors can only enter the Reichstag through door 2 or door 5. Door 2 opens on to the Simonstrasse, door 5 on to the Reichstagschufer. 2. Anyone entering the Reichstag through door 5 comes into a lobby across which there is a rope barrier. The officials stand behind this barrier. 3. Each visitor has to apply to one of the officials. It is impossible to get into the Reichstag without giving particulars to an official. Each visitor has to fill in a printed card with the name of the visitor, the name of the member whom he wishes to see, and the reason for the visit. 4. This card is then taken by a messenger to the member concerned. The member is asked whether he is willing to see the visitor. 5. While the messenger is looking for the member, the visitor has to wait in the waiting room. He is all the time under observation by the officials on duty. 6. If the member agrees to see the visitor, the latter is then brought to him by a messenger. The messenger conducts the visitor personally to the member and only leaves when the visitor is with the member. 7. All visitors are listed in a special register, which is made up from the cards already mentioned. The Fire in the Reichstag between 9 and 9.15 in the evening of February 27, 1933, fire broke out in the Reichstag building. The first public announcement of the burning of the Reichstag was made that evening by wireless. The Berlin Broadcasting Station also announced that the incendiary was a Dutch communist named Van der Lubbe. He was said to have made a full confession and to have been caught in the building, dressed only in a pair of trousers, when the police officials came to the Reichstag. It was stated that he had a Dutch passport on him and also a membership book of the Dutch Communist Party. Early the following morning, the official Presidienste circulated the following account of the fire. On Monday evening, fire broke out in the German Reichstag. The Reich Commissioner for the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, Minister Goering, immediately on his arrival took over the direction of all operations. As soon as the fire became known, Chancellor Adolf Hitler and Vice-Chancellor von Papen also came to the Reichstag. This is undoubtedly the most serious act of incendiarism as yet experienced in Germany. The police investigation has shown that the fire was started at a number of points all over the Reichstag building, from the cellar to the dome. Tar and torches were used, these being put in leather chairs and among the documents of the Reichstag also near doors, curtains, wood paneling, and at other easily inflammable spots. A police official saw persons with burning torches in the dark building. He fired at once. One of the criminals was caught. This is the 24-year-old bricklayer van der Loob of Leiden in Holland, who had on him a Dutch passport, which was in order, and stated that he was a member of the Dutch Communist Party. The central portion of the Reichstag has been completely burnt out, the Sessions chamber with the tribunes and corridors have been destroyed. The damage runs into millions. This act of incendiarism is the most monstrous act of terrorism so far carried out by Bolshevism in Germany. Among the hundred centners of material which the police discovered in the search of the Karl Liebknecht House, there were instructions for the carrying through of the Communist terror. On the Bolshevist model. According to these instructions, government buildings, museums, mansions, and essential plant were to be burnt down. The directions also state that in disturbances and conflicts with the police, women and children should be sent in front of the terrorist groups, where possible the wives of the children of police officials. The systematic carrying through of the Bolshevist revolution has been checked by the discovery of this material. In spite of this, the burning of the Reichstag was to be the signal for a bloody insurrection and civil war. Plans had been prepared for looting on a large scale in Berlin at 4 a.m. on Tuesday. It has been ascertained that today was to have seen throughout Germany terrorist acts against individual persons, against private property, and against the life and limb of the peaceful population, and also the beginning of general civil war. The Reich Commissioner of the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, Minister Goering, has taken the strongest measures to meet this terrible danger. He will maintain the authority of the state in all circumstances, and with all the means at his disposal. It can be stated that the first attack of the criminal forces has been beaten back for the moment. Already on Monday evening, all public buildings and vital industries were placed under police protection to ensure public security. Special police cars are passing continuously through the parts of town, which are chiefly threatened. The whole of the police and criminal police in Prussia has immediately been put in a state of readiness. The auxiliary police have been called up. Orders have been issued for the arrest of two leading communist members of the Reichstag on a charge of grave suspicion. The other Communist Party members of the Reichstag and officials have been put under protective arrest. Communist papers, periodicals, leaflets and posters have been prohibited throughout Prussia for four weeks. All Social Democratic newspapers have been prohibited for 14 days, as the Reichstag incendiary in his confession admitted that he had connections with the Social Democratic Party. Through this confession, the United Communist Social Democratic Front has become a palpable fact. This situation demands of the authorities responsible for the security in Prussia decisive action to fulfill their duty of maintaining the authority of the state in this moment of danger. The latest events have fully established the necessity of the special measures which had already been introduced. Auxiliary police, authority to the police to shoot, etc. These measures equip the state power to nip in the bud any further attack on the peace of Germany and thereby on the peace of Europe. Minister Goering appeals for the strictest discipline from the German nation in this grave hour. He expects the unwavering support of the population for whose security and safety he answers with his own person. The first press announcements On the morning of February 28th, millions of people read the accounts of the burning of the Reichstag in their papers. The front pages shouted in great letters, the German Reichstag in flames. This event overshadowed all other news. In London, Paris, New York, Amsterdam, Prague, and Vienna, the reader was furnished with long accounts of the burning of the Reichstag building. The reporters unanimously stated that the hall had been completely burnt out, including the dome above it, the glass roof being shattered, and the struts bent. The corridors round the Reichstag chamber and the lobby were also destroyed. The press of the world, however, contained a number of divergent statements with regard to the further details. The Prager Tagblatt of February 28th stated that the fire was noticed at about ten o'clock in the evening. The temps of March first stated that the fire had been discovered at nine fifteen p m. The London Times of February twenty eighth reported that the fire had broken out at nine p m. The reports in the papers also gave different accounts of how the fire had been discovered. The Hugenberg news agency, Telegraphen Union, stated in an announcement, which was printed by a section of the press in the morning edition of February 28th, It has been established beyond question that the fire was developed into a conflagration with the aid of torches placed at various points. A police official noticed through one of the windows a man carrying torches, moving stealthily, and immediately fired at him. The temps of March 1st states, on the other hand, that the first warning of the fire was given by an employee of the Engineering Institute, opposite the Reichstag. The number of points at which the fire started is estimated differently by the various papers. The Prager Togelblatt of February 28th speaks of 20 points, Well, the Berlin correspondent of The Times states in the issue of February 28th that the police officers on duty told him that the fire had started in four or five places. The Chicago Tribune reports 10 points. The rapidity with which the fire spread shows conclusively that it was started at a number of points. The pogrom against the left begins. The fire in the Reichstag was still burning when police cars and motorcyclists and the Nazi storm detachments were already on their way. The first arrest was made immediately after midnight. By the morning, police headquarters were filled with hundreds of arrested persons who sat on long benches in the corridors. Communists, socialists, pacifists, writers, doctors, and lawyers had been torn from their beds in the night and taken to police headquarters. Many of them were already asleep when the wireless announcement of the fire was circulated. The noon papers gave the first names of the arrested persons. Among them were writers Ludwig Renn, Egon Irwin Kiesch, Eric Baron, Karl von Ozeitsky, and Otto Lehmann Rusbilt, the doctors Bonheim, Schminke, and Hoden, the lawyers Apfel, Litten, Barbach, and Felix Hall. The communist members of the Reichstag Walter Stecker, Ernest Schneider, Fritz Emmerich, Ottoman Getschke, and Willy Kaspar. The Reichstag member Torgler, who was accused of being jointly responsible for the burning of the Reichstag, on the morning of February 28, went to police headquarters to make a protest against the charge. He was arrested. The Communist and Social Democratic Press did not appear on the morning of february twenty eighth The printing works of the Vorwarts and of the papers Berlin M. Morgan and Welt M. Abend were occupied during the night of the twenty seventh and the copies of the morning edition, which had already been run off, were confiscated. The printing works of the Rote which are in the Karl liebknecht House, had been occupied by the police some days previously and the rotafon had already been prohibited before the burning of the Reichstag. Emergency Decrees The fire in the Reichstag was put out during the night. Within a few hours, the president of the Reichstag signed a decree entitled Emergency Decree for the Protection of the Nation and the State. It contained the following clauses. In virtue of Article 48 of the Constitution of the Reich, And as it measures of defense against communist acts of violence which endanger the state, it is decreed. One Articles 114, 115, 117, 118, 123, 124, and 153 of the Constitution of the German Reich are suspended until further notice. Consequently, restrictions on personal freedom and on the right of free expression of opinion including the freedom of the press and of the right of association and assembly, are permissible beyond the limit laid down in these Articles of the Constitution. In addition, the privacy of correspondence of the post, telegraph, and telephone is suspended, and house searchings and the confiscation or restriction on the rights of property are permissible. 4. Any person who opposes any orders issued by the state authorities or officials authorized by them for the enforcement of this decree, or orders issued by the Reich government in accordance with Section 2, or who supports or incites to such opposition, is liable to imprisonment for not less than one month, or to a fine from 150 to 15,000 Reichsmarks, unless a heavier penalty is imposed under existing legislation. Any person whose opposition endangers life is liable to not less than six months hard labor in extenuating circumstances and if the opposition has fatal results to the death penalty or in extenuating circumstances to not less than two years penal servitude. Any person who incites to opposition to the public danger is liable to hard labor or in extenuating circumstances to imprisonment for not less than three months. 5. The death penalty is substituted for penal servitude for life where this is laid down under the criminal code, namely under sections 81, High Treason, 229, Poisoning, 307, Arson. 311 causing explosions 312 causing floods 315 damage to railways 324 attempts to poison groups of persons the following crimes are punishable with death or unless heavier penalties are imposed by previous legislation with penal servitude for life or up to 15 years one any attempt to murder the president or ministers or commissioners whether of the reich or of the states of the reich or instigation to such murder or agreement or conspiracy with others aiming at such murder in cases under section 115 of the criminal code serious rioting or sections 125 serious breaches of the peace any act involving the use of arms or conscious and deliberate cooperation with armed persons. 3. Any act to deprive any person of his or her liberty, with a view of using him or her as a hostage in political conflicts. The Campaign Special editions of the papers, ministerial speeches, wireless announcements and posters everywhere announced. The Communists have set fire to the Reichstag insurrection and civil war were to follow. The Communists intended to violate your wives and murder your children. The Communists intended to poison the water in the wells and the food in the restaurants and canteens. Every hour, crimes of the Communists were hammered into the readers of the German papers and those who listened to the wireless. The campaign was developed on a systematic plan the press was crammed with atrocity stories of what the communists had intended. The Vorsitz Zeitung of March 1st gave information which it had from government sources. The government is of the opinion that the situation is such that a danger to the state and to the nation existed and still exists. The material from the Karl Liebknecht House is now being examined by the government's legal advisers. Official reports state that this material contains proof that terrorist acts had been systematically prepared by the communists on a scale that would place the nation and the state in the greatest danger. Among the confiscated communist material, definite plans have been found for the seizure of hostages, especially the wives and children of particular individuals. Plans for incendiary acts on public buildings, directions for terrorist groups who were to be placed at certain points in the uniform of the police. Storm Detachments and Stolhelm. There is, it is declared, well-founded suspicion that the Communist activities are to be continued and that the central leadership of their operations will, if necessary, be removed from Berlin. There is also good cause to believe that, as in Karl Leibnacht House, there are subterranean cellars and passages at other points, through which the Communists escape at the moment of danger. In this connection, it is emphasized that the necessary steps have been taken at the German frontiers, to make the flight of suspected persons into foreign countries impossible. In connection with the act of incendiarism in the Reichstag, it is stated that irrefutable proof exists that the chairman of the communist section in the Reichstag, Deputy Torgler, had been for some hours in the Reichstag building with the incendiary, and that he had also been with others who had been concerned in the crime. It is added that the other criminals may have been able to escape through the subterranean passages, which, in connection with the heating arrangement of the Reichstag, link the Reichstag building itself with the building occupied by the president of the Reichstag. In this connection, reference is made to the arrest of two persons who telephoned from the Reichstag building, asserting that the president of the Reichstag, Goering, was the instigator of the incendiary act, and stress is laid on the fact that the people concerned were connected with the Social Democratic Party and press. The authorities state that the fight against communism will now be conducted with extreme severity. Anyone who works with the communists, or regarding whom there are sufficient grounds to suspect that he is working with them, will be rigorously dealt with as the communists themselves. The government statements also make it clear that the elections will be held under all circumstances. It is to be noted that the decrees for the protection of the nation and the state, and the decree which punishes high treason, more severely than hitherto, are supplementary to each other. The authorities state that the clauses of the decree for the protection of the nation and the state, which are particularly directed against communism, were necessary because of the documents found in Karl Leibnick's house. Thus, for example, the increased severity of the punishments laid down in the criminal code for the administering of poison and poisoning to the common danger has been due to the fact that the Communists intended to carry out acts of poisoning on a large scale, including the poisoning of food and restaurants frequented by politicians who were their enemies. Minister Goering spoke on the wireless on March 1st, and this was relayed from all German stations. According to the unanimous reports published in the press, Goering made the following statements in his speech. The Communists are using leaflets and handbills to rally workers capable of using arms for red mass self-defense. This pretext was to enable the masses of the revolutionary Communists to be mobilized and to bring them into battle against the nation and the state. I should like to state openly that we are not carrying on a defensive fight, but that we have passed to the offensive along the whole front. It will be my principal task to extirpate communism from our people. For that reason, we have also mobilized those forces of national Germany whose main task it must be to overcome communism. On February 15th, it was ascertained that the Communist Party was engaged in organizing terrorist troops in units up to 200 men. These groups were to dress in storm detachment uniforms, and then to carry out attacks on motor cars, stores, shops, etc. Similar attacks were to be carried out on Allied associations, such as the Stahlhelm and the National Parties. By these means it was hoped to break the unity of the national movement, Terrorist troops in the uniform of the Stahlhelm were also to carry out similar activities. In cases of arrest, false particulars were to be given. In addition, numerous forged orders of the Storm Detachment and Stahlhelm leaders were found in which the Storm Detachments were directed secretly to hold themselves in readiness for the night of March 6th in order to occupy Berlin and they were to be prepared to use their arms and beat down all resistance, etc. These forged orders were then to be circulated to the authorities and among the citizens in order to create the fear of a national socialist push and to throw the workers into the necessary state of confusion. There were also forged police orders instructing the police to hand over armored cars, At a meeting of the Communist Party executive on February 18th, there was discussion of what was expressly called a pact of attack of the united proletariat against the bourgeoisie and against the fascist state. On the same day, the leader of a group which was intended to blow up bridges, who had fallen under suspicion owing to a considerable quantity of explosives being missing, was arrested. A short time afterwards, An organization of the Communist Party was discovered, which was to work with poison. A poison plan was discovered in Cologne, which made it clear that the poison was to be used in the food of the storm detachments and of the Stahlhelms. A further document proves that not only the wives and children of leading individuals were to be taken as hostages, but also the wives and children of police officials, who were to be put in front of demonstrations as a living wall of defense. The leadership of this murder organization was in the hands of the communist leader Munzenberg. On February 22nd, the Central Committee issued the slogan of the arming of the working class. The instructions state, In the application of the terror, every means and every weapon must be employed. Mass strikes were organized. Solidarity strikes were to be prepared. All persons able to use arms were to report, and all members were to prepare themselves for illegality. Goering then spoke of an organization plan for the armed insurrection, entitled The Art of Armed Insurrection. He stated that this armed insurrection was the first phase of civil war. Instructions were said to be given in it for the use of small terrorist groups, and for the starting of fires in the thousands and thousands of places. The aim of these activities was said to be to entice the police and the Reichswehr into the country, and then to start the insurrection in the unprotected towns. In making use of hostages, no humanitarian motives should be allowed to intervene. Goering's concluding words were, Let me tell the Communists. My nerves have never given way up to now and I feel strong enough to repay their criminal activities in kind. Who were the incendiaries? From the moment when the news was spread of the burning of the Reichstag, the question was raised throughout the press of the world. Who were the incendiaries? Most of the German papers adopted the statement of the Hitler government that the communists had set fire to the Reichstag. The whole of the foreign press, however, received the official information with considerable skepticism, which soon developed into open ridicule of the official count of the temps of March 1st, containing the following statement. The official communiqué is obviously intended to rouse the population to fury against the left opposition. There is no way of testing the police statements. It can only be said that the burning of the Reichstag, Comes very opportunely for the government election propaganda. It serves as prelude to action, not only against the communists, but also against the social democrats, and also serves the purpose of enabling the Nazi storm detachments and the Stahlhelm to come out as an armed force. In the same edition of the Temps, it is said that the democratic circles and circles of the left in Berlin are skeptical regarding the origin of the Reichstag fire. In the issue of the following day, the Temps further states, The arrest of von der Lubbe and his accomplices is not sufficient to lift the veil, which covers the Reichstag fire. The London News Chronicle of March 1st declared, The suggestion that the German communists had any official connection with the affair is just nonsense. The London Evening Standard of March 1st, 1933 stated, it cannot be disputed that there are millions of people in Germany today who simply cannot and will not believe the extraordinary stories circulated officially about the Red Revolution, which has only just been averted. Nor is the official version of the setting alight of the Reichstag by a Dutch communist implicitly believed by many people. These few examples of the many press reports Suffice to show that no credence was given outside Germany to the official declarations of the Hitler government. The whole world outside Germany was and is convinced that the National Socialists set fire to the Reichstag. We will give one more quotation, which brings out the view of the outside world with particular clarity. The leading article in the Daily Telegraph of March 2nd contains the following. Van der Lubbe's examination will perhaps explain how he smuggled in his supplies of benzene, and whether he worked alone or as one of the ten, who are reported by the Nazis to have had a hand in the job. As to this, it may well be asked, first, where are the nine others? And secondly, where were the lynx-eyed Reichstag watchmen? Within three days of the Reichstag fire, The Hitler government was confronted with the fact that no one abroad gave any credence to its reports. Who benefited from the Reichstag fire? Every criminal investigator first puts the question, who derived any advantage from the crime? And this question must be put in connection with the Reichstag fire. The Hitler government asserted in its official report of February 28th that the Reichstag fire had been organized by communists, and that it was to have been the signal for a bloody insurrection and civil war. But is there, apart from the government's assertion, a single shred of evidence that on the night of February 27th, the Communist Party intended to resort to bloody insurrection? The Communist Party's tactics are definitely at variance with such a suggestion. On March 25th, 1933, the German Communist Party, issued a statement on the burning of the Reichstag, which contains the following. Anyone who has even the slightest knowledge of communism, of the teaching of Marx and Lenin, of the decisions of the Communist International, and of the German Communist Party, knows that the methods of individual terror, arson, acts of sabotage, and so forth, do not belong to the tactical methods of the communist movement. The Communist Party has always stated that its aim was carrying through of the proletarian revolution. In order to achieve this aim, the Party uses the tactics of revolutionary mass struggle, the winning of the masses for the Communist movement, through agitation and propaganda, and above all, through the organizations of the daily struggle for the immediate interest of the workers. These are the tactics through which the Communist movement, on the basis of Marxist and Leninist principles, realizes its aim in every country. It is obvious that the Reichstag fire could have no imaginable sense or purpose for the Communist movement. Could setting fire to the Reichstag bring any advantages to the Communists? The German Communist Party had been increasing its influence steadily during the preceding years. In the presidential elections of March 1932, it secured 4,960,000 votes for its candidate, Ernst Thalmann. In the Reichstag elections of July 31, 1932, it secured, in round figures, 5,300,000 votes. In the elections of November 6, 1932, it reached 6 million votes, The Communist Party entered the campaign for the election of March 5, 1933, with exceedingly good prospects. The whole foreign press prophesied a great increase in the Communist vote. The dissatisfaction in the social democratic ranks was growing. Repeated acts of provocation by the Nazis, the ejection of the social democratic ministers in Prussia by an officer and three men, The passivity of the trade union and party leaders all contributed to driving wide sections of former Social Democratic voters into supporting the Communists. There was equal dissatisfaction in the ranks of the National Socialists. In the November election of 1932, Hitler had lost over two million votes. The process of disintegration was developing. When Hitler came to power, Many of his adherents expected a decisive change for the better. It did not come. There was a danger of still further secession into the ranks of the Communists. The Hitler government included among the evidence of what the Communists had had in mind the pamphlet, The Art of Insurrection. The Bayrisch Kurier, the organ of the Catholic Bavarian People's Party, in its issue of March 3, 1933 refer to the fact that this pamphlet dated from 1923, and the pamphlet contains the following quotations from Lenin. One must make sure first that all the class forces hostile to us have fallen into complete enough confusion and are sufficiently at loggerheads with each other, have sufficiently weakened themselves in a struggle beyond their capacities to give us a chance of victory. Secondly, one must ensure that all the vacillating, wavering, unstable, intermediate elements, the petty bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeois democracy, in contradistinction to the bourgeoisie, have sufficiently exposed themselves in the eyes of the people and have disgraced themselves through their material bankruptcy. Thirdly, one must have the feeling of the masses in favor of supporting the most determined, unselfishly resolute, revolutionary action against the bourgeoisie, then indeed revolution is ripe. Then indeed, if we have correctly gauged all the conditions briefly outlined above, and if we have chosen the moment rightly, our victory is assured. With the vanguard alone, victory is impossible. It would not only be foolish but criminal to throw the vanguard into the final struggle, so long as the whole class, the general mass, has not taken up a position either of direct support of the vanguard or at least of benevolent neutrality towards it. Had Goering even glanced at the pamphlet, he would not have made the mistake of citing it as evidence against the Communist Party. Hitler as Hugenberg's Prisoner. On January thirtieth, nineteen thirty three, the so called government of national concentration was formed with Hitler as Chancellor. The terms on which the Hindenburg appointed Hitler were extremely hard for the National Socialists. German nationalist ministers had the absolute majority in the cabinet. The Vice-Chancellor, von Papen, was appointed Commissioner for Prussia, although in previous governments this post had been filled by the Reich-Chancellor himself. The Ministry of the Reichswar, which the National Socialists had claimed in the last stage of the struggle for power, was entrusted to General von Blomberg, a loyal supporter of Hindenburg. When the new cabinet took the oath on January 30th, Hitler had to give an express undertaking, in the presence of all the members of the cabinet, that he would not alter the composition of the government, whatever the result of the election might be. The three National Socialist ministers, Hitler, Frick, and Goering, took their places in a government of German nationalists who controlled all the economic ministries, besides the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of the Reichswehr. According to the plans of the German nationalists, Hitler was to be their prisoner. He was received by Hindenburg only in the presence of von Papen. There was no precedent for such treatment to a Chancellor. No change could be made in this situation by legal methods. The German nationalists were very pleased with themselves. The second leader in command of the Stahlhelm, Lieutenant Colonel Dusterberg, in an election meeting on February 12th, made known to the public the fact of Hitler's undertaking not to make any change in the cabinet. The men round Hitler, especially Goebbels and Goering, did all they could to free Hitler from the embrace of the German nationalists. Only a changed distribution of power within the government could damp down the growing dissatisfaction of many National Socialist electors. An attempt at a putsch was too dangerous. The Reichswehr and the Stahlhelm were with Hindenburg. If it came to fighting, it was likely that the Reichsbanner would side with the Reichswehr and the Stahlhelm against the Nazis. Dr. Oberfroren's Memorandum It was in this situation that the National Socialists entered the election campaign. Dr. Goebbels, the most ingenious of the National Socialist leaders, saw how things threatened to develop. It was he who first thought of a grand coup, which would at one blow change the political position of the National Socialists. Evidence of the origin and carrying through of this coup exists. On April 26th and 27th, 1933, The Manchester Guardian published articles on the Reichstag fire, in which reference was made to a memorandum originating in German nationalist circles. This memorandum was produced by the former chairman of the German nationalist fraction in the Reichstag, Dr. Oberfrauen. When it became known that Dr. Oberfrauen was the author of the memorandum referred to in articles published in the Manchester Guardian, the attack on him began and on May 7th, he was found dead in his flat. The report issued by the Hitler government stated that he had committed suicide. In reality, he had been murdered by the Nazis. After the March 5th elections, Dr. Oberfraeren had attempted to organize the fight of the German nationalists and the Stahlhelm against the Nazis. As a confidant of Hugenbergs, he was fully informed of all that went on in the cabinet. He set down in a memorandum what he knew of the preparations for the burning of the Reichstag, and sent this memorandum to his friends. We quote from this memorandum only the most important passages, which indicate what was taking place behind the scenes during February. After stating that the repeated searches of Karl Leibnacht House had produced no results, Dr. Overfrahren gives an account of how the plan for the burning of the Reichstag was developed by the National Socialists. Dr. Goebbels' Plan Herr Dr. Goebbels, untroubled by any scruples, had soon prepared a plan which, if carried out, would not only overcome the opposition of the German Nationalists due to the Nazi demands for the suppression of social democratic and communist agitation, but in certain circumstances, if completely successful, would also secure the prohibition of the Communist Party. Goebbels considered it necessary that material should be found in Karl Leibnacht House, which would prove the criminal intentions of the Communists, and establish that a Communist insurrection was imminent, and that therefore there was immediate danger in delay. As Melcher's police, Melcher who was the police president of Berlin, had still found nothing in Karl Leibnacht House, a new police president for Berlin must be appointed from the National Socialist ranks. It was only with great reluctance that Herr von Papen allowed his nominee, Melcher, to be displaced. The National Socialist nomination of Count Eldorf, head of the Berlin Storm Troops, was not accepted. Finally, agreement was reached on Admiral von Leivitzau, who, although he belonged to the National Socialist Party, also still had connections with the German nationalists. It was a simple matter to smuggle material into the Karl Leibnig house, which was then empty. The police had the plans of the office section and the cellars. The necessary documents could therefore be easily put there. From the first, Goebbels was clear as to the necessity of underlining the seriousness and the credibility of the forged documents. On their discovery by some incident even if this was only hinted at. Provision was in fact made for this. On February 24th the police forced their way into the Carl Leibnick house, which had been standing empty for some weeks, searched it thoroughly, and sealed it up. That same day the official announcement was made that a quantity of extremely treasonable material had been found. On February 26, the Conti Bureau, the government's news bureau, issued a very detailed account of what the result of the search had been. It is not worthwhile to repeat this statement, the penny-dreadful style of which struck even the most unprejudiced reader. A detailed account was given of secret passages, secret springs, secret tunnels, catacombs, subterranean vaults, And other contrivances of similar character. The whole content of the report produced a ridiculous effect, as, for example, the descriptions of the cellars of an office building in the fantastic terms subterranean vaults and catacombs. It was remarkable that in what were described as well-concealed rooms in the cellar the police should find several hundredweight of precise directions, for the carrying through of an imminent revolution. The statement that what had been found in these secret vaults was proof that the Communist Party and its auxiliary organizations lived a second illegal existence below the surface was particularly nonsensical. Admiral von Levitzau, police president of Berlin, on the afternoon of Sunday, February 26, made a report to the Minister of the Interior. Herr Göring, on what had been found in the Karl Leipnacht House. The discoveries in the Karl Leipnacht House gave rise to considerable dissension within the coalition government. Papen, Hugenberg, and Celte vigorously reproached Herr Göring for making use of such a swindle. They pointed out that the documents alleged to have been discovered were such clumsy forgeries that they could in no circumstances be produced in public. They pointed out that it should have been managed more skillfully, along lines similar to those used by the English conservatives, sometime previously in connection with the forged Zeneweil letter. The crudeness of the description of the Karl Leibniz House given by the Conte Bureau was emphasized. German nationalists and Stahlhelmers pointed out that no one would believe that the Communists would have deliberately established their illegal headquarters in Karl Leibnig House. The forgeries should have been carried out less clumsily, and the illegal rooms should have been discovered in some other quarter of Berlin. Nevertheless, as the whole affair had already been made public, the German Nationalists could do nothing but agree to further strengthening of the decrees against the Communists, on the basis of the material that had been discovered. Of course, they were in no way concerned to protect the Communists, but merely objected to the crudeness of the methods used. At the same time, they also wanted to allow the Communists, in any event, to take part in the elections, as they wanted to prevent the National Socialists from securing the absolute majority in the Reichstag through the elimination of the Communist Party. End of section 5, chapter 4